Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you. Welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 171, Law and Order, Special Ma'at Unit. Today, King Horemheb unveils one of his most famous projects, a great decree stipulating new rules and regulations for Egypt's privileged and powerful. He promotes a new vision of justice. This episode comes to you as an offering by Katie, who joined the Patreon as a priest. Katie, thank you kindly. You are too generous. May your priesthood, which began in the days of Josa Keperu Ra or Emheb, endure for all your days. May your temple thrive and your offerings last forever. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me. Come, let us take up our writing palette, ready our pens, and prepare to record Pharaoh's proclamations. Our story today takes place sometime in the reign of Horemheb. The date is unknown, as the text we are dealing with does not have a surviving day, month, or year. With that in mind, this topic could take place any time during Horemheb's reign. What we do know is that at some point during his regime, Pharaoh Horemheb issued a decree, or rather a series of decrees. The king proclaimed a new set of rules and regulations for officials working in the Egyptian government and the local administration. These rules are recorded on a stela, a great stone slab. The stela, or rather several of them, were erected in the temples of the land. The main one comes from Karnak, but there were others at Abydos, or perhaps Memphis. This stela is known as Horemheb's Great Decree. The Great Decree is a monumental proclamation, and it's one of the more unusual records from 18th Dynasty Egypt. We don't get a great deal of information about law and order, and how the kings of Egypt actually addressed questions of justice. Throughout Pharaonic history, we get moments here and there where a specific stealer or papyrus might record ideas around what the laws actually were. Horemheb's decree is perhaps one of the most expansive and detailed to survive from the Pharaonic period. Today, much of the decree is recorded on a great slab of granite that was erected in the temple of Karnak. That slab was uncovered, or rediscovered, during the late 1800s, and over the past 140 years, various scholars have photographed and copied the text upon this monument. Unfortunately, the Karnak stela was already in a poor condition when it was discovered. At least 60%, maybe more, of this text is gone, probably forever. But what survives gives a strange vision of Horemheb's regime and his vision for justice in Egypt. The Great Decree appears as an enormous slab of stone. It is a tall rectangle with a curved top. The top part, or lunette, presents Horemheb standing before the great gods. In the Karnak version, he stands before Amun-Ra. Amun, the lord of Karnak, receives Horemheb's offerings, that offering is the Great Decree. Beneath the pictures of Horemheb and the gods, lines of hieroglyphs record the speeches given by this king. They are a series of proclamations. Horemheb describes various crimes or instances of wrongdoing that are happening within Egypt. He describes what these crimes are, 
and he declares his response to the issue. Ormheb lays out the punishments for a great series of problems, and through these proclamations, the king claims to restore justice, or ma'at, to the two lands. Ormheb's great decree is broken, fragmentary, and terribly complicated, but it is also deeply fascinating. The beginning of the text is a speech from Amun to the king. On the Karnak stela, the great god Amun presents Horemheb as his favoured son. He gives the king all life, stability, and dominion, health and joy like Ra. And Amun describes the titles and names of Horemheb as the pharaoh. This preamble is surprisingly long, but it's quite formulaic. Amun describes Horemheb as the strong bull who is excellent of plans, the great of marvels in Karnak Temple, the golden Horus, whose heart is pleased with Ma'at, or justice, and Horemheb as one who causes the two lands to come into existence. Basically, the prologue gives the usual pageantry around pharaohs and their proclamations. Horemheb is a pious ruler. He gives offerings to Amun-Ra and all the gods. And in return, Amun gives him life, stability, and power over the earth. It's a generic opening, but it does set the context for what is coming. Next, Horemheb describes his reign generally. And here, we get an interesting idea of how Horemheb wanted to represent himself. At the start of his decree, the king says the following, quote, On this day, the beginning of eternity and the starting of continuity, making millions of said festivals and hundreds of thousands of years. Horemheb has been given the excellent office of he who is in the sky. He has been given the kingship of Ra. Horemheb has been assigned the throne of Horus, and the land is flooded with love of him. Ma'at came, and she united with Horemheb. The Reki people, the commoners, rejoice, and their hearts are joyful. The beloved land, Egypt, has begun a new cycle. The black land, Kemet, is in joy and in gladness. Horemheb came, carrying Ra's honour and respect. He filled the two lands with his effective action. For if the good god, the king, is born for anyone, he is certainly born for Ra. Horemheb is a devoted and watchful ruler. He decreed laws and achieved ma'at throughout the two lands, Egypt. For he, Horemheb, delights in praising the beauty of ma'at. End quote. It's very flowery, but you get the idea. Horemheb presents himself as the very avatar of justice. He embodies the principles of Ma'at, the great goddess of truth, justice, and divine order. Horemheb is the representative of the sun god Ra. He specifically holds the kingship of Ra, and he sits upon the throne of Horus. So, right out the gate, Horemheb sets the context properly. The great decree that is now beginning is not just an expression of royal will, it is an expression of the god's will. The great deities have a vision for justice in Egypt and all the world. Horemheb is presenting that. The stela now continues and focuses on Horemheb himself. It begins to set the scene for how the great king came to consider the problems that were affecting Egypt, and how he planned to deal with them. The stela says, quote, His person, Horemheb, took counsel with his heart. He considered how he might drive away falsehood and suppress lying. The plans of his person, of the king, are an excellent refuge, repelling all violence, and delivering the people from the wrongdoings that were among them. Behold, his person spent the whole time seeking the welfare of Egypt, and seeking out instances of wrongdoing in the land. Then, the scribe of his person came forth. The scribe took up his writing palette, and he put into writing everything that Horemheb, the king himself, had said. End quote. So the scene is set. Horemheb has considered the problems, and now he begins to speak his solutions. 
The king's scribe, his secretary, takes down what the king is saying, and these proclamations will become the new laws. It's an interesting start. It gives a sense of immediacy and almost personality to Horemheb's great decree. At least from the stealer, you could imagine the king pacing up and down, while his scribe dutifully copies out everything he is saying. Perhaps Horemheb is speaking quickly, and the scribe has to rush to note it all down. Or perhaps Horemheb takes his time and propagates his wisdom with consideration. The setting is very positive. It gives you an idea of the king, who is considering all problems, and he is ready to address any evil that should affect Egypt. So, with this happy setting of the scene, we now begin to address the crimes themselves. Horemheb is aware there are problems within Egypt, and he is going to deal with them. The laws of the pharaoh begin as follows. Quote, Horemheb spoke as follows. If the small man makes a boat with a sail in order to serve the great house, the pharaoh, loading his boat with the provisions of breweries and kitchens, and if he was robbed of this boat and the provisions, the small man stood bereft, lacking all of his goods, and stripped of the products of his labours. This is a wrongdoing, and the king will suppress it by means of his excellent actions. If there is a poor man, and he is robbed of his goods and his craft, my person commands that every official who seizes those provisions, the law shall be done against that officer. His nostrils, or his nose, shall be cut, and he shall be exiled to Charu. End quote. The first crime that Horemheb tackles deals with boats. That may sound unimportant, but it was actually vital. In a river society, a person or family's boat was their primary mode of conveyance. If you wanted to travel any significant distance within Egypt, a boat was almost essential. And many people throughout the country would depend on these small boats for their livelihoods. Think of the boat as a family car, but also the public transport and a long-distance truck. Put that all together, and you maybe have a sense of how important these little crafts were. Horemheb deals with boats as his first law. Apparently, there was a problem with boat theft. The text, as usual, is fragmentary, so it's not 100% clear who was doing this crime, but it seems like royal officials, low-ranking administrators, were taking people's goods as a kind of tax or tribute on behalf of the ruler. Horemheb's first proclamation forbade this kind of corruption. The punishment is quite interesting. Anyone guilty of this crime would suffer two forms of justice. First, the state would cut their nose or their nostrils. There's a bit of ambiguity here. The word for nose, fenej, can also mean nostril. So it's hard to know if the state was going to cut off a criminal's nose, or if they would just slice their nostrils. Either way, it would be extremely painful, and the punishment would leave a permanent mark. For the rest of their lives, people would know, this person committed a crime. The second punishment was exile. The criminal would suffer their nose cutting, and then they would be sent to a place called Charu. Charu is a real location. It was in the far north, at the place where the Sinai Peninsula and desert meets the Nile Delta. It was also on the coast, where the delta met the Mediterranean Sea. There, archaeologists have found, and are currently excavating, an enormous fortress city. Charu was a castle with thick walls, multiple bastions, and a full-scale town. There, at the crossroads of desert, river, and sea, Egyptian soldiers would guard the roads, ships would come to trade, and apparently, criminals would reside as exiles of the state. Charu has been around for most of the 18th dynasty, and maybe earlier. I haven't talked about it much yet, but that's going to change very soon. In the later years of Horemheb, and the reigns of his successors, we will get a lot more information about Charu, the fortress, and its business and commanders. So, keep that name in mind. Charu, 
the great castle town on the edge of Egypt, a city where, perhaps, many folk had disfigured noses. Moving forward, Horemheb now deals with a couple more problems. There are cases of corruption and crime within the state. Some of these crimes concern the royal apartments, sometimes called the harim or harem, but more accurately described as the king's household, palace, and domestic structures. The people who represented these apartments were going forth and taking supplies from towns and families. Again, Ormheb deals with this problem. Quote, As for those who bring provisions to the royal apartments, and for the offerings of all the gods, my person, the king, commands that if any official is guilty of taking or theft from those who bring the provisions and offerings, the law shall be done against him. He shall have his nose or nostrils cut, and he shall be sent to Charu. When the officers of the pharaoh's house of offerings have gone about, collecting the tribute or tax in the towns, they have seized the slaves of the people, and they kept the slaves working for six or seven days without allowing them to depart. This was an excessive detention. When the officials do this, the punishment shall likewise be done to them. Their nose shall be cut, and they shall be sent to Charu. End quote. The text there is a little fragmented and garbled, but the gist of it is that low-level officials, representing the king's household and estates, were going about and taking resources that they shouldn't. In some cases, they were taking goods from people who, hypothetically, were bringing the supplies and provisions for the king's palace or the temples. So low-ranking officials were demonstrating corruption. They were taking goods that rightfully belonged to the king. Additionally, those officials were going to the towns and the farming estates, and they were taking slaves away to use for their own purposes. Again, this was a major problem, as the farms were deprived of necessary labour, and that would inevitably lead to disrupted harvests. So, having dealt with the problem of boats and infrastructure, Horemheb now turns to agriculture and the proper practices around it. Once again, he stipulates the punishment for officials who might do this. Their nose shall be cut, and they shall be exiled. The king is not messing around. Next, we get the third major crime. This time, Horemheb is concerned with leather. Quote, It is said that the two divisions of troops, the two army battalions, one in the south and one in the north, stole animal hides in the entire land. They did not even pass one year without applying the brand of the royal household to cattle that was not due to them. As a result, they are stealing the stamped animals from the cattle herders. They, the two divisions of the army, went forth from house to house, beating and seizing hides, without leaving any for the people. When that happened, the overseer of the great house, the king's representative, went around to each house or town to collect the animal hides that were due as tax. But the hides were not found among the towns. The people told the king's representatives, saying, The soldiers have stolen them from us. This is a wretched situation. As for any person of the army, of whom it is said, He goes around stealing animal hides. From this day forth, the law shall be done against him. A beating of one hundred blows, and the opening of five wounds, and taking from him the animal hides that he took from the people. End quote. Soldiers were misappropriating leather or animal hides from towns and farming estates. Again, that may not sound like a major problem, but it could be. Every hide, every animal skin, represented the death of a goat or a cow, and each of those animals represented a huge investment in time and in animal feed. Essentially, the soldiers were stripping towns and estates of high-value goods. So once again, Horemheb forbids this practice. If a soldier was found responsible, he would be beaten 100 times. He would have five cuts upon his flesh, and the animal hides he took would be seized from him. 
Now, we come to a crime with an interesting backstory. Horemheb deals with an issue where royal officials were taking supplies from various towns, but they were doing so in a very specific context, and that context had a long history. The king says, quote, Now, as for this other case of wrongdoing which one hears in the land, it is the case where officers of the queen's household and the scribes of the offering tables from the royal apartments go against the local mayors. They are oppressing them and searching for provisions. This happens during the official journey upstream and downstream, a journey that started in the reign of King Men Kepera, Tutmose III. Back then, the king would travel downstream and upstream every year for the festival of Opet. On that journey, officials of the king's apartment would approach the mayors and say, Give us provisions required for this journey, and behold, the pharaoh, life, prosperity, health, is making a journey for the festival of Opet. As a result, the mayors prepare before the pharaoh, life, prosperity, health, everything that he should require. But who is this official who goes back again to seek another contribution? That is an evil deed. My person, Horemheb, commanded that this should not be allowed. From this day forward, the wrongdoer will be punished in accordance with the other decrees. End quote. Apparently, there was a yearly journey, a kind of official procession, upstream and downstream. It happened for the Grand Festival of Opet, an annual celebration which we have described before. Starting in the reign of Tutmose III, Men Ra, this royal procession became quite an event. And during that journey, the king's officials would gather supplies from the various towns which they passed. In that way, the king would fund his journey to the Opet festival by tribute from all the towns of Egypt. Apparently, royal officials were doing this, but they were doing it repeatedly. Whether it was the time of Opet or not, they were going and taking goods again and again. Horemheb forbids this practice. The annual procession needs to be funded, but anyone who does it twice shall be punished. And he'll be punished in the same way as everyone else. The nose will be cut, and he will be exiled to Charu. So far, it seems like Horemheb is really dealing with repeated abuses from low-ranking officials, representatives of the royal palace and the king's apartments, the sort who were gathering supplies for the day-to-day operations of the royal house, they were taking goods excessively from towns and estates along the land. Representatives of the army, officers or soldiers, were laying undue burdens on families and estates. They were taking goods that they should not, and the land was suffering as a result. That's the picture we get from the decree so far. Was it true? Well, I'll come back to that later. But it's an interesting series of crimes. It's not clear how widespread that corruption was. But at the very least, some groups in the royal household and administration, and perhaps the local military garrisons, were exceeding their authority. They were taking goods from people, families, villages, farming estates and they were doing so in the name of the king. Horemheb, as the embodiment of royal justice and the god's will, seeks to stamp this out. He lists the crimes which are happening, and he provides terrifying punishments. With that, Horemheb addresses the majority of the problems. Unfortunately, the text is badly damaged, and there are several crimes which we only have tiny traces of so we can only speculate on how widespread these issues were. Nevertheless, you get the idea. There was low-ranking corruption and abuses of authority. Horemheb addressed them directly and applied Pharaoh's justice. In the next section, Horemheb will lay out his vision of what that justice actually involves. The king has spent a great deal of time describing crimes and how they should be punished. Next, the king moves into a more proactive phase and begins a great reorganization of the justice system. That is after the break. 
See you in a moment. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. Oremheb's great decree opens with a proclamation. The king lists a great series of crimes that are happening in the country, and he addresses them directly. Oremheb provides terrifying punishments, including physical harm and disfigurement, and exile to the very borders of the country. Now, Oremheb moves into part two. He leaves the crimes section, and the king begins to lay out his vision for the government of Egypt. At this point, the Great Decree switches from crime and punishment to something more proactive, a vision of reform. In the second part of the Great Decree, Horemheb says the following, quote, I, Horemheb, have improved this entire land. I have sailed it as far as the southern wall, i.e. the fortresses in Nubia. I know the interior of this land completely, for I reached right into the heart of it, that is, I understood Egypt to its core. I, Horemheb, searched for people, and I sought officials who were skilled in speech, people of good character, who know that which is in the belly, those who listen to the speech of the king's house, and the laws of the hall of judgment. I sought these people, and I promoted them to judge the two lands, to fulfil the will of the king. I placed these effective ones in the great cities of southern and northern Egypt. Each man would live on his own income, and he would not lack anything. I also placed instruction before them. I placed the laws in their daybooks or journals. I instructed these judges concerning the way of life. I guided them to the state of Ma'at. I taught these judges, saying, Do not associate with other people i.e. don't make connections. Do not receive the rewards of another person. Do not take bribes or corruption. Behold, every one of you, the judges, who associates with others, for you, that will be doing wrong instead of right. End quote. Oromheb lays out a program of reorganization. He claims to have travelled the length and breadth of the country, and to understand the very heart of Egypt. Fair enough, that might actually be true. Oromheb had been a prominent administrator long before he became king. Chances are he had many opportunities to travel the country. Oromheb appoints a whole series of new judges. He promotes individuals whom he considers to be worthy or excellent. He places them in various cities in southern and northern Egypt, and he gives them the authority to represent him and to act as judges and assessors of the country. This is a fascinating proclamation. Oromheb effectively says that he has appointed an entirely new set of royal officials who will control justice and administration in the country. What's more, he claims to have instructed these men, and they probably were men, personally. He says that he placed the laws within their journals or daybooks, the sort of papyrus documents they would carry around with them. And apparently, Horemheb told every judge that he appointed not to associate with other people, not to make connections, not to receive bribes, and those that did should consider themselves as doing a crime. Effectively, Horemheb was reshaping the judiciary. 
he was appointing a whole set of justice officers, people who would carry his will throughout the country. Interestingly, Horemheb explicitly forbids these judges from taking bribes. Fair enough, that's probably a good idea. And he stipulates that they should live on their own income, but they will not lack anything. In order to combat the issue of bribery, the king also issues a proclamation. Quote, now, as for the tribute of silver and gold, my person repeals that tribute, so that one does not collect any tribute of anything from the royal judges. End quote. In other words, Horemheb forbade the royal officials from taking bribes. They should live on their own income. But he balanced that prohibition by withdrawing the income tax. Officially, the judges should give a portion of their income to the king. But Horemheb now repeals that. They can keep their income, but no more corruption. In theory, the two should balance out. No more corruption, but you can keep your normal income. Cool? Cool. So Horemheb lays out a program of reform and reorganization. He is appointing new judges who will represent his will. And he is very clear about how those judges should resource and provide for their incomes. Bribery and corruption is forbidden. And just in case anyone was thinking of doing so anyway, Horemheb now lays out his most extreme punishment. Quote, now, as for every Hatia or mayor, and every Chemnetcher or priest, who sits in the court or who acts as a judge, any one of those judges that does wrong against the honest person, for the judge, this becomes a great penalty. A penalty of death. End quote. The surviving portions of the Great Decree only have one example of capital punishment, and it's here, the issue of corruption within the judiciary. Oromheb wants to ensure that his judges represent his will honestly and cleanly. After all, they reflect upon the pharaoh himself. If Horemheb's judges are corrupt, that is a great blight on his claim to be a servant of Ma'at. So Horemheb lays out his only capital punishment. If a judge breaks his rules, Horemheb will kill him. That might sound excessive, and perhaps it did to the ancients as well, because just after providing the death penalty, Horemheb takes a quick detour to justify this decision. He says, quote, Behold, his person, the king, has enacted this law in order to effectively action the rules of Egypt, to not allow another deed of wrongdoing to happen, and to set on the path of justice, or ma'at, all the judges of the kenbet, the court. It is the Chemnetcher priests of the city temples, and the Hatia mayors of the interior of this land, and the Wab priests of the gods, who form every kenbet, every court. They judge the people of every city. So his person, the king, cared for Egypt, and in order to make the lives of its people flourish, he, Horemheb, rises upon the throne of Ra. Behold, the kenbet courts are established throughout the land, in every city, according to the plans that my person has made effective. End quote. The king is willing to kill any judge who goes against his will, but he has a reason for this. Horemheb is laying out the path of Ma'at, the path of justice for the country. The servants who fill the courts, or Kenbet, are representatives of that principle. So, in order to ensure proper justice, peace, and security for his two lands, Horemheb lays his most effective punishment. The Kenbet courts and their judges will be Horemheb's representatives. Anything else? And, well... Following his reforms, we now come to one curious section. Most of Horemheb's rules seem to apply specifically to royal officials and even officers of the army. Apparently the king was targeting groups or representatives that operated throughout the country. 
The individuals who represented royal authority and who generally lived in regions where Horemheb could not always be present. Basically, the king's new rules go against a broad group of individuals throughout the two lands, and those groups had power and influence. I think we can assume that these rules, these regulations, would be a bit frustrating for those who previously enjoyed power. The reformation of King Horemheb was, officially, overthrowing corrupt administrators and setting strict limits to their behaviour. Horemheb was also reducing the opportunities for corruption. That must have ruffled feathers. With that in mind, the king's great decree now turns away from reorganisation, and he starts to focus on rewards. Specifically, rewards for high-ranking officials and army officers. Horemheb decrees, quote, Now I will apply the rule that concerns the guard of my person, the king. On each first day, that is, every ten days, the guards will gather. It will be like a feast for them. Every one will find that there is a part of all good things, such as quality bread, meat, and cakes, from the king's property itself. The officials' heads would be anointed with oil. Their voices would reach to the sky, in paying adoration to the goodness of their lord, Horemheb. The commanders of the infantry, all the overseers of the army, and every man would come forth while the king was throwing rewards to them from the window of appearances. Every man was summoned by name by the king himself. They would come away from his person, shouting or rejoicing, and provided with the property of the king's house. You shall not find one of these men who does not have his share. End quote. Essentially, Horemheb takes away the opportunities for corruption, but he replaces them with an official mechanism for rewarding and enriching those people who were suddenly losing a source of revenue. The king was laying out a series of regulations for military officers and representatives of the royal administration. From a certain perspective, he was taking away from those individuals. Now, Horemheb balances it out, and he institutes a series of gifts. Every ten days, there will be a great celebration, and soldiers or officials of the army will receive rewards from the king himself. So the king basically replaced corruption with a new source of revenue. If that worked, it probably had a secondary function as well. By restricting the opportunities for external corruption, for taking from the local society, and depriving officials of their unofficial income, Horemheb could perhaps draw them back into the royal network. In effect, the king's policy may have helped to tighten royal control over these low-ranking officials, and to restore the king's house as the central institution. That is a between-the-lines reading. If it is accurate, you might view this policy as an attempt to reassert the king's control over various government representatives. Remember, the Egyptian administration and government was spread out over a vast country, and without modern techniques of communication, most of those people were acting on their own initiative, most of the time. By bringing them closer into the royal system, and taking away their ability to enrich themselves, Horemheb could potentially assert more control. Finally, Horemheb's decree reaches its conclusion. The king closes with a speech. Horemheb proclaims, quote, Now, while I, Horemheb, am enduring of life, existing upon the earth, while I am making the monuments of the gods, so shall I repeat births like the moon. The moon, or Thoth, is united with life, stability, and dominion. The moon's body has illuminated the limits of the earth, like the disk of the sun, the Aten. Here, this decree that my person has made for the organizing of the entire land. My person had thought about these deeds of wrongdoing, that had been perpetrated. Great are the commands of Horemheb. End quote. 
the king closes with a statement of ideology. Horemheb views himself as an avatar of Thoth, the great god of wisdom, learning, writing, and knowledge. Horemheb quite liked Thoth, and I'll come back to that in a future episode. Closing his decree, Horemheb places his rules, his regulations, his laws, within the context of Thoth and his justice upon the earth. Doing this, Horemheb kind of comes back to that earlier concept, where he is the embodiment of Ra's kingship, where he sits upon the throne of Horus. Horemheb is the avatar for the gods, and his justice is considered and wise, like the very god of wisdom. It's a nice way to close, and perhaps it gives a sense of where Horemheb was coming from, at least within his own mind. The king may have genuinely viewed himself as a figure of wisdom, bringing new stability and peace to the land. Whether that was accurate is a more complicated question, but as the great decree closes, we get a sense of Horemheb's own self-reflection. It's an interesting case. So the Great Decree lays out an extensive series of crimes that must be punished. It also describes a program of reorganization or reform, appointing new judges and guiding them in new principles. Finally, it establishes a new system of rewards. The people who formerly were corrupt could now come directly to the king to receive their rewards for good behavior. Doing so, Horemheb could hypothetically reduce instances of corruption and abuse throughout the land, while simultaneously bringing those officials back more firmly under his own control. So that's the basic premise of the Great Decree. But what does it all mean? What is actually going on here? In popular Egyptology, Horemheb's Great Decree is presented as an example of justice, of reorganization, and it's used as a major source for the concept of law and order within ancient Egypt. From one perspective, the Great Decree does do all of those things. It gives a sense of Horemheb's vision for the country and how it was to be organized. That being said, it is difficult to analyze the exact context of this decree, the true meaning of what Horemheb was trying to achieve. Superficially, the pharaoh's proclamations had a simple goal. They addressed instances of corruption and abuses of power. They promoted Horemheb as a wise ruler, one who enacted justice and order, or ma'at, and who propagated the will of the creator, Ra. On a surface level, the great decree seems like a good thing. Horemheb was trying to curb abuses, to bring relief to the lowly and the meek. That's a net positive, right? Sure. But, as always there is more to the story. Horemheb's decree lays out a program of reform. His new rules might be seen as a simple restitution of injustice and abuse. But if we take a different perspective, we can see some of the mechanisms of power. Through this decree, Horemheb provides a series of rules, rules that he can use to remove certain officials or groups The Great Decree is quite clear that anyone guilty of these crimes will be disfigured, having their nose cut, and they will be exiled to a distant city. Again, that seems like a good thing, and on the surface it is. But reading between the lines, we can also see that Horemheb may have been actively trying to remove a great many people from their positions of authority and replace them with his choices. The Great Decree makes it quite clear that Horemheb appointed new judges and administrators, and that he specifically chose people who were loyal to him, who understood his ideas and would follow them. Horemheb stated, proudly, that he appointed new judges to oversee the cities, and that he, personally, instructed them on their business and their goals. If we take a slightly cynical view of this decree, we might see that Horemheb was trying to reshape the country's administration. Through this process, through these laws, Horemheb could create a new bureaucracy, a 
a system of government devoted entirely to his visions. In other words, Horemheb is promoting a vision of law and order, but it's also possible he was promoting a new system of control. I don't want to go too deep on that idea. The majority of the great decree, the physical text, is lost, and it's entirely possible that the original text, in its fully complete form, gave more explanations for Horemheb's logic. Ultimately, there are many gaps in the record here, and as a result, historians do arrive at very different visions of this decree. Depending on their own viewpoints and their own backgrounds, different scholars can have radically different images of Horemheb. In some accounts, Horemheb is an enlightened reformer. For other scholars, Horemheb's decree is more like the document of a dictator, somebody trying to centralize power and control under their own hands. Unfortunately, the gaps in the record are so large that we really can't be sure which of those was more accurate. I have to admit that I, personally, am quite suspicious of Horemheb's motives. We have no way of knowing how widespread or endemic this abuse and corruption actually was. It's entirely possible that Horemheb was making a mountain out of a molehill, that he was exaggerating the extent of this problem in order to justify a reorganization. It's the second half of the decree that really raises my eyebrows. The king goes to great lengths to describe his appointment of new officials, new representatives who would act as judges. It does sound like Horemheb was appointing his own favorites, his own servants, to be controllers of the cities and the people. What's more, Horemheb replaced the older corruption with a new system, where every ten days he gathered high-ranking servants and military officers and pampered them with a feast. The king dispensed rewards, just like Akhenaten had done so prominently before. In the end, Horemheb's reforms do suggest that the king was consciously and systematically drawing the powerful back to his control. He was making these officials dependent on his wealth and his generosity. We should keep those factors in mind. It would be very easy to view Horemheb as a kind of benevolent or enlightened ruler. The Great Decree presents that vision, but it also hints that behind the scenes, Horemheb was centralizing authority and control. He says that his motives are genuine, to protect the land and restore Ma'at. But the king's response to those problems, the tools he used to solve the situation, those hint at more behind the scenes. Ultimately, we should always treat a text like this with caution. The Great Decree is royal propaganda in the classic sense. It promotes a specific vision of Horemheb's regime. It tells us how he wanted to appear, but it does not tell us what was truly happening. So, how should we characterize the Great Decree and Horemheb's larger goals? Was he committed to prosperity and justice, a judicial giga-chad? Or was he centralizing power and controlling the mechanisms of administration, a kind of pharaonic Führer? As usual, the answer depends entirely on our circumstances, the way we, as individuals and groups, view history. Personally, I suspect the Great Decree is a little bit of both. Throughout the 18th dynasty, we have seen the growing power and visibility of government officials. Ever since the days of Hatshepsut and Thutmose III, prominent ministers have shown their wealth, their access to power, that trend continued into the days of Amunhotep III, Akhenaten, and Tutankhamun. Hell, Horemheb himself was one of the most prominent officials in the government of Tutankhamun. With that in mind, it is possible that these issues were percolating for a long time within Egyptian society, and Horemheb, having risen through the ranks, may have seen those problems developing through his life. Perhaps, when he became the pharaoh, Horemheb acted to curb the process or corruption that he had seen. Then again, Horemheb himself may have been a part of the problem, 
and only when it started to reflect on him as the king did he seek to stamp it out. The point is, we should not take Horemheb's words at face value. The pharaoh of Egypt, the divine ruler and centre of all government authority, he had many reasons to control the narrative, to promote a positive picture of his regime. 3,000 years later, the truth is gone. We only have this text from Horemheb himself. And even that text is terribly damaged. Less than half of it survives. Perhaps future excavations in Karnak or elsewhere will reveal new fragments. And maybe, one day, we will get records from other people or groups that shed new light on the situation. For now, the great decree of Horemheb is a fascinating but shadowy proclamation. Horemheb shows us a velvet glove, but his iron fist may still be visible. Next time, we dive a bit deeper into Horemheb's self-representation. At the end of the Great Decree, and for much of his earlier career, Horemheb made a point of identifying with a specific god. It seems that Horemheb rather liked the deity Jehuti, aka Thoth. On the next episode, we're going to explore that relationship, how it appears in Horemheb's monuments, both as a pharaoh and from his pre-royal career, and what it might mean for our picture of the king. Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. Special thanks must go to the priests, my top-level supporters on patreon.com. My thanks to Linda, Terry, TJ, Yola, Mykost, Andy and Chelsea, Jason, Kendra, Evan, Kyla, Nedin, Stephen, Ashley, and Katie. These fine folks help keep the temples running, and they allow us to erect great stelae proclaiming the justice of the pharaoh, or his proclamations of control. To the priests, and all my patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. That's all from me, I'll see you on the next one. Take care, and may pharaoh's justice protect you. May you avoid corruption. Do not take slaves from the fields or the storehouses, and wherever... What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.